0: Uh, One already implied uh, that you have warmly welcomed our family uh, into your family, into your church family, and that this is a church where the gospel is preached and is faithful to the Word of God, which is becoming a rare commodity in this world. And we're very thankful that they can be part of that and that we can be here with you. As Pastor Joe mentioned, uh, for 42 years, Kathy and I served overseas. And for the last 17 years of that time, uh, we were part of an international church that had over 40 different nationalities, uh, which made it a very rich, a rich time and opportunity. I also had opportunity to continue in uh, church development and leadership training in many, uh, a number of different countries, in Czech Republic. I was there regularly about twice a year over... Um, about 15 years, in Holland, England, France, Portugal, and twice in Chad. What's, one of the things that was amazing about that, and of course we know that to be true, is that the Word of God finds application in every culture. And the Gospel is relevant in every culture. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's the same message, and it's just as important today as it was then. The good news of Jesus Christ addresses the fundamental need of every person, of every culture, and of every age. So the most important question then is if a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that the testimonies worked out this morning because they are such an excellent example of what I would like to address this morning. I also, as in Mike's case, was raised in a Christian home and was led very early to make a profession of faith in in Jesus Christ, about five years of age. Um, but then I struggled to know whether my faith was really truly saving faith. You just go through and you wonder, you, am I just believing this because this is what my parents said? Or is this really something that I have embraced myself? And so in some way I'm addressing a lot of the young people here today that you might be facing that same Having grown up in a church, in a family where you know, you know the vocabulary, you know the right things to say, but maybe in your heart there's that question, do I really believe like I'm supposed to believe? The words faith and belief have many different nuances in the English language. It can be as simple as, uh, well, I believe it's not going to rain today. Um, that's maybe more hope at times. Um, or can be as, as profound as I believe in God. But when we consider belief, belief in God is not sufficient. Because James tells us that the demons believe and they shudder. And they certainly don't have saving faith. The Gospel of John was written that we might believe. Toward the end of that Gospel in chapter 20, John writes, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of god and that believing you might have life through his name. So John records select miracles, about 7 events, conversations that are intended to lead to belief, to saving faith, not just believing that some vague thing, but a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. And it's intended, I believe, to strengthen the faith of believers, to strengthen your faith, so that you would know what you believe. John records in chapter 9 an encounter which Jesus had with a man born blind. If you would like, please turn with me to that chapter. Like so much in this gospel, it provides lessons on faith. And it contributes to our understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Part of that Argumentation, which John sets forth to come to that conclusion at the end, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I would suggest that we can divide this chapter up into three distinct scenes, much like in a play and If you are taking notes on this you can there 's uh, three scenes: the first I would call uh, compassion that we find in verses one through twelve and it 's the conversation that the blind man has with Jesus and then uh, with the neighbors after he has been healed. The second scene begins in verse 13, and that will continue on through 34, and I would call that confrontation. It's again the blind man, this time he and his parents are pulled before the Pharisees, and there's a confrontation going on between the Pharisees and this man and his parents. Finally, in verse 35, after the Pharisees have kicked the man out, uh, we find the final scene in the chapter, and this I would call confession, because we hear the man's confession and some Jesus, some words from Christ about what's important. And along the way, we'll learn some lessons on faith, about seven. Two of them will come up in the first scene, three in the second, and the final two in the last scene. That first scene, Compassion, opens as Jesus is leaving the temple in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 9, it says that he had made a profound statement claiming to be God. They had asked him, How are you? You're not even 50 years old, and you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, now continuing on to chapter 9, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am in the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, Jesus and his disciples came across this man that had been blind since birth. And this question that they asked, well, who sinned? They actually had based that on their somewhat limited or restricted understanding of the Old Testament. It was pretty common, thinking of their day, if this man is blind, somebody must have sinned. In the Old Testament, we read that if you obey God, he will bless. So, if you're in a bad situation, you're not being blessed. And if you're not being blessed, somebody must have sinned. But that logic, as I said, is a restricted view of the Old Testament because they forgot all the passages that talk about good people having bad times. Just read some of the Psalms. Oh, how do the wicked get in away with all this? They, they're having a great time and the righteous are suffering. Jesus stated clearly that the problem was not the man's sin or the parents' sin, but the purpose of God to display his glory and, I would say, work faith in this man. And it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, just a little bit earlier in chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. People had asked Jesus an important question. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he sent. So this is what we will see God working in the man born blind. Jesus came to be the light of the world. And that light will become evident in the man born blind. And we see that progression as we go through this chapter. What is happening in this man? Now the first lesson in faith is this. Faith is not a condition for Jesus' compassion. Even though the response of faith is still needed. And Why do I say that? Because it's neither the man's sin nor his faith that prompted Jesus to heal. This is not one of those cases that... A man is brought to Jesus to be healed. Or he comes like the man born blind, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. There's nothing like that in this chapter. They're going along and they just see him. And Jesus said, this has been already planned by God, by the Father, that the works of God will be displayed in him. We we're taught elsewhere in Scripture, and it was interesting. We heard from Mike already. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. 1 John 4, verse 10 here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Or later on in the same book, 4, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. God has taken the initiative. And we become proclaimers of reconciliation. We respond in faith. But that's an important lesson to remember. God has taken the initiative. Faith wasn't the condition for Jesus' compassion. God loved us. Sent his son into the world to be our savior. He took the first step. The scene continues with a response to this miracle. Continuing in verse 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him, that was the man who had been born blind, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is, it's he. Others said, no, but you like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. It's a rather sad report when we think of it. His neighbors who knew him struggled to accept this as the man born blind. Now he was old enough, I'm sure that they had seen him enough, that with their own eyes they should have recognized this is the man that we have known maybe since he was born that was blind. And the blind man, how does he understand who Jesus was? At this point, it's the man called Jesus. That's, that's all he knows about the one who healed him. Neither the blind man, or the man born blind, now seeing, nor his neighbors had saving faith at this point. So, this is the second lesson faith is not guaranteed by miracles. The neighbors doubt of their own ability rather than believe that there was a miracle. Well, I, my eyes tell me. This is the man, but it can't be because he can see now. And we know that the man that used to beg here was blind, so it can't be. They could not believe their own eyes. And the blind man simply identified Jesus as the man called Jesus. He knew nothing more than that Jesus made him see. The miracles made people more responsible but they did not guarantee that they would believe. Just think of the life of Jesus and the things that he said. Remember, he told Capernaum, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have believed. They had all these miracles, but didn't work belief. And think of the whole life. John writes at the end, If you tried to write everything down that Jesus has done, the world couldn't hold all the books. And at the cross, how many were there that had followed him? There was a handful of women. And John, that was it. And those who a week before had been saying, Hosanna to the Lord on highest, they were shouting just the night before or during that night, crucify him that morning, crucify him, crucify him. All the good that Jesus had done had not changed people's hearts. Do not expect or hope for the spectacular or even the good that you do to change hearts. That's not the way God works. It can make people more responsible. And one day it will bring a testimony that they will have to praise God for the good that you have done in His name. But that doesn't mean they'll, they'll change. Just think of what happened during COVID. You remember New York struggling, New York City struggling with handling the COVID cases and Samaritan's Purse comes in and sets up their hospital tent next to, in a park next to a hospital there. And what did the government say? Please get out of here because we don't, I'll put it in my words, we don't want you helping our people because you don't agree with what we think. They didn't look at the good that was being done and say, wow, these people must really be special. They rejected it. Don't expect miracles or even the good that you do to cause people to come to faith. We move now to the second scene here. It's going to get a bit more intense because it says the neighbors brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind, verse 13. Here we have some confrontation about to happen. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. The cancel culture existed 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Now this was a problem for the Pharisees that Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath. They did not think that was right. And I'm sure you're aware of that, that the Pharisees had developed all these extra rules to the Old Testament of how to keep the Sabbath. They had taken the command, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, and they had come up with all these additional commands of what it meant to keep the Sabbath day. So that Jesus made mud and put it in the eyes of a man and that he ended up being able to see that was work. Now, it's encouraging, a little bit, that the Pharisees had divided opinions. Some believed Jesus could not be from God because he did not keep the Sabbath, parentheses, in their manner of thinking. Others question how a sinner could do such miracles. I'm betting on Nicodemus on being one of those. Because in John chapter 3, we're told he came to Jesus and said, we know that you must be from God, because no one could do the things that you're doing unless he were from God. At least Nicodemus was a voice among the Pharisees saying, well, well wait a minute, guys. This, nobody could do this unless they're from God. So they asked the man again what he thought. And the former man, blind, man formerly blind, said he's a prophet pharisees still did not believe they brought in the parents questioned them they just say ask him they know they knew he was his son but that's all they would say the pharisees begin to insult the man at least what they considered insults well you you're a disciple of this man we're disciples of moses we know Moses was from God. We don't know where this man is from. At this, the blind man shows both courage and insight. Now, please remember, this was a man whose livelihood was begging. He was considered by all those around him as a sinner and maybe the son of sinners. He did not have a very high social status. He was at the bottom rung. And here he is in front of the Pharisees who were the top of the religious ladder. And he's telling them off. He's saying, what? This is amazing. You don't know where he's from? And he instructs them. Of course, Pharisees being as proud as they were, canceled him. Get out. We don't want to listen to this. Who are you? Now, as we look at this, from each of these groups, the Pharisees, the man born blind, and his parents, we can learn some lessons about faith. How does faith work out in people? Well, first, from the Pharisees, faith can be hindered by human standards. The fact that this was done on the Sabbath was a problem for them because they had their traditions. They had their ideas of of what what you're allowed to do on a Sabbath day and confront it with the choice between their traditions or Jesus, of accepting the testimony of a man they consider to be a sinner, or humbling themselves, guess what they chose? We'll keep our tradition and we'll keep our pride. You get out. Like the Pharisees, our own preconceptions can hinder belief. People don't want to be corrected about their understanding of God. Consider the argument which some people use against the existence of God. There's no God because of evil in the world. Have you heard that argument from anyone, or at least read that that argument is used sometime? In reality, their logic is this. Since God does not act the way I think he should, I will not believe in his existence. I think God should not allow evil and since I see evil, I will not believe in God. Of course, you throw out God, and where do you get any standard for evil and good? That's a sort of a stupid conclusion. You, can, you only have evil if there's some standard of right and wrong. And you throw out God, and you no longer have any right and wrong. But this, these people want to hold so much to not having a God to which they have to answer They just won't accept his existence. Their preconceived idea, well, if there's evil, then there can't be a a good God. Fourth lesson arises from the parents. Faith can be hindered or dampened by fear. And we heard that again in the testimony this morning. Fear of people is an example of that. The parents were called to give testimony. They gave just the facts. Those of you who are older remember Dragnet (laughs) And the sergeant, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's the way they answered. Just the facts. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. You want any analysis of the situation? Ask him. We're not going to say anything more on this. Why? Because drawing the conclusion was dangerous. If we say Jesus healed him, they were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And being cast out of the synagogue was like having your... Social Security and Medicare and all your, your social services canceled. Because the synagogue was their social system in that day. They were the ones that brought in the meals if you needed it. They were the ones that helped you if you needed it. And to be kicked out meant you no longer had any help. So was, well, let's just keep our mouth shut here. We find others in the Gospels who also believed but feared. I already mentioned Nicodemus. He was a believer. We're told that he was a believer, but secretly a follower of Jesus because of his fear of the Jews. There are those today who are hindered or dampened by fear. And the reasons for fear are mixed. They often have to do with imagined consequences. In some cases, if a person turned to Christ, they would have to leave home. We saw that in our experience in in Germany. I remember a A young woman wanted to be baptized. She was adopted in her family and her parents said, if you get baptized, don't come home. Yeah. Wow. Don't come home. Others may fear and have a reason for fear for their lives. Think of all those in Muslim countries who turn to Christ where there's a death sentence both on on them and on the person who shared that with them and yet they still do it. We really must ask though would anything be too much considering what is gained? Jesus said what profit is if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Fear can hinder or dampen faith, but it shouldn't when we remember what we gain by placing our lives fully into the hands of God and Jesus Christ. The fifth lesson in faith, the third in this scene, is from the man born blind, and this is this is what just thrills me as I go through, and it's going to conclude in the last, last scene. But please observe the development in this man's thinking. In verse 11, he speaks of the man Jesus. Well, how, who healed you? Well, the man Jesus. In verse 17, he says he's a prophet. And then in verses 25 to 33, he has the courage to confront the Pharisees. And in verse 33 he says of Jesus that he must be from God. <clears throat> Why does he move from this man Jesus to saying he's a prophet, he's a, someone from God? Because of conflict. Faith can be strengthened or increased by conflict. Conflict can do much for us. It can make our thinking clear. It forces us to decide what our convictions are. It separates the essential from the non-essential. When you are unchallenged, you may develop very sloppy, wrong thinking. That changes when you have to prove it. When that person asks you, well, why do you believe that? Well, that sounds stupid. You say, well, I don't want to be stupid. You know, well, how, how am I going to prove that? The man born blind was forced to examine what had happened to him. If he hadn't been brought before the Pharisees, maybe he would have just been left. What was the man Jesus that healed me? Boy, am I glad glad I can see now. Isn't that nice? But he was brought into a situation of confrontation, of conflict, and he had to come up with some answers. Who was it? How Are you sure you were born blind? Well, yes, I know I was born blind. Well, how did that happen? Well, let's see. Nobody has ever done this. this, This man, Jesus, must be from God. Be thankful. James says, count it all joy when you're confronted by trial. And conflict is one of those trials that come. Be thankful because it can strengthen us in our faith. Show what we truly believe. We come to the final scene, verses 35, starting in 35. I'm only going to read the first section of that. Now I will complete it. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Faith culminates in worship. Saving faith, real faith, the faith that we need to have to be a child of God. If you have that, it will culminate in worship. It will lead you to fall down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ for what He has done for you. Jesus finds the man. Ask him again. Note, Jesus takes the initiative. Isn't that beautiful? After all this conflict, Jesus goes and finds him. Because we are told at the beginning of the chapter, we must work the works of Him who sent me. He has a job. Jesus has a job to do with this man. And he goes looking for him to bring him to the point of his blindness. This is why he was born blind, for this moment in his life. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, depending upon, I think maybe in the King James, it has the Son of God. There are some manuscripts that have the Son of God. But son of man is a messianic term from the Old Testament, particularly from Daniel, and it points to the deity of the Messiah. Jesus used it himself. In fact, I don't believe the gospel writers ever ascribe it to Jesus. It's always quoting Jesus, calling himself the son of man. For that the Sanhedrin condemned him to death on the grounds of blasphemy. They knew it was a title of deity. And so when Jesus used it of himself, they were ready to condemn him to death. And of course, if the text Son of God is correct, that is even, even more claiming deity at this point. And we can see the development of the man's thinking as he responds to Jesus. First, in verse 36, I'm reading from the ESV, it says, Who is he, sir? It's the same word we'll find later, Lord. Who is he, Lord. But the sense here is one of respect. Who is he, sir, Lord? And Jesus says, you have seen him. It's he who is speaking to you. And now he uses Lord again, but I think it's in a totally different sense, which the ESV then brings out. He said, Lord, I believe. And then he falls down before Jesus and worships him. This man began by thinking of Jesus simply as a man called Jesus. And in the end, he fell down and worshiped Jesus. The miracle of healing pointed to the identity of Jesus. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament could only do what the Old Testament promises of the Messiah if he were God. And this man, who was born blind, recognizes this. Recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done should result in worship. True faith, what we call saving faith, will lead to worship. We often think of worship in our modern culture as the songs that we sing. He didn't break out in a song. He fell down on his face. He submitted to him. Lord, you're my boss. Whatever you say, that is worship. When we say, whatever you say, Lord, whatever you have for my life, I will accept. You know, there's no argument there. Well, why did you make me born blind? Why did I have to go through all those years of begging? There's no complaint. There's worship. He fell down and worshiped him. I often, and consider this, chapter, I wish in a way that the chapter ended here. It's such a high point. But there's one final lesson that's very important. And because it's the words of Jesus, we know in narrative, understanding narratives, here's a point that John particularly wants us to understand. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind... You would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. We had 38 verses of pretty clear text to understand. These last couples are the ones that leave people scratching their heads. What is Jesus talking about here? I judgment. Oh, I understand, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, those who see may become blind. And then Jesus, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What's he talking about here? Well, there's both a warning and a promise here. Saving faith requires an awareness of need. And Jesus uses this figure of seeing and blindness to help understand this. Those who know that they are blind know that they are in darkness. I can't see. I'm spiritually, blo- I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the dark. These people can receive sight. Those who know that they're in the dark can receive sight. Others believe that they can see. We're fine. I've got it all together. You don't need to tell me anything. Like the Pharisees. You're a sinner. Get out of here. We don't want to listen to that. We've got it all together. They imagine that they have some spiritual perception. That's the way the Pharisees were. They should have known because of their knowledge of the Old Testament, but they denied their own need. They did not see themselves as having any blindness. Therefore, they remained in their sin. But now that you say we see... Your guilt remains. A person must be aware of his or her spiritual blindness in order to gain spiritual sight. And I understand Mike's testimony. (laughs) I think you took a little script out of my own of a, a child praying a prayer because you're afraid of going to hell. Not understanding the reason why I would have to, because I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. So here's the warning. If you think you're okay and you don't need a Savior, watch out. Your sin will remain. But here's the promise. If you know your need, you can come to Jesus and He will give you spiritual sight. He'll let you see. You will see the glories of God, the greatness of God, and the greatness of our Savior. And you'll see the forgiveness that exists in Jesus Christ. So confess to God your need for forgiveness and for spiritual sight. Thank God that He loved us while we were yet sinners. He took the initiative. Trust God alone to work in hearts, to draw people to Himself through Jesus Christ. It's not the good deeds that we do. It's not the miracles that Jesus did. It's the work of God. So we pray. God, work in people's hearts. We use what God has given us, His Word, the sword of the Spirit, to pierce a person's heart. Ask God to reveal and correct wrong thinking that may hinder your faith. Oh, it just bombards us. The media, the things that we read, our upbringing, our culture. God, show us if we have wrong thinking that may keep me from having the faith that I should. Receive God's peace by taking everything to Him in prayer with thanksgiving. Recognize conflict as from the hand of God to strengthen your faith. It's not an evil from God. It's something good. We were just talking about this on the way in with uh, COVID. I think that was a blessing for the church. Because God says, everything works together for good to those that love God. It was a great revealer of hearts. And we needed that. Recognize conflict is from the hand of God to strengthen your faith and worship God and the Son as the logical culmination of your faith in Christ. These things are written, John said, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have taken the initiative while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You loved the world that You gave Your only begotten Son that for, for any would believe You would give eternal life. We thank you for that. Father, I pray particularly for young people here, perhaps those who have grown up in a church situation, and Christian homes, who have heard the gospel. They know the vocabulary, but face that question of, what do I really believe? That you would give them clear spiritual sight to see their need. And if they see their need, to know how to respond. And if they have, to have that confidence that You are their Lord, that Jesus is their Savior. Father, I thank You that You are at work. You are doing what we cannot. You are drawing hearts to Yourself pray that we would be faithful witnesses, faithful proclaimers of your reconciliation. And that we would remain faithful to your glory. That we may all rejoice in the work that you have done in bringing many sons to glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.